The last couple of weeks we have been dealing with Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees for their love of money and the wickedness of self-justification, as seen in verse 15. These men were masters of elevating themselves and putting everyone else down through legalism. These men were wicked to the core. They presented themselves as examples of righteousness, but in fact, they were filled with unrighteousness and wickedness. Then last week we saw Jesus began to tell this story of the rich man and Lazarus. This was a story of a great reversal. The rich man had everything before death, but after death he was sent to hell, where he was in a continuous state of torment. While Lazarus was a poor man before death, desperately poor, and he went, when he died, to paradise and began to enjoy the rest of heaven. As we saw last time, Jesus used this story to call the self-righteous Pharisees to repent and embrace the one true God, the one, the God of the law and the prophets, the one that was in their midst. This story would have had also an encouraging effect on the disciples as they fully recognized what they deserved and then were reminded of the grace and mercy of God that, they, that he had saved them. So as we go through this, if you're a believer, a true repentant believer, there's some great truth here for you to encourage you of what God has done, what he has saved you from. At the same time, if you are an unbeliever, we ask you to consider the words of God. God's truth. Feel the weight of his truth and turn to him. There is such a wealth of truth in this story. I'm convinced I could probably preach this story for months, maybe two, but we'll try to attempt to finish today. Otherwise, we would be in hell for a couple of months. Again, as we saw the story, it's a tale of two completely different characters. The rich man who remains unnamed, and the poor man named Lazarus. Remember we saw last week that Lazarus means the one whom God has helped. At first glance, the name appears to be a cruel joke. That Lazarus, who was the most desperate of circumstances most of his life, received not even the crumbs from the rich man. Yet his name was called the man in whom God helps. Again, we see here, though, God's good towards his own is not evident always by their status in this world. That's very important. J.C. Ryle stated it this way. A man's worldly condition is no test of his state in the sight of God. It's a great phrase. Our position in this world does not reveal our position in Christ. Remember, the contrast was staggering. <clears throat> the poor man and the rich man. The rich man was filthy rich. The poor man was desperately poor. The rich man was joyously living. The poor man was miserably suffering. The rich man was extravagantly fed. The poor man was extremely hungry. 
The rich man was aided. The poor man was needy. The rich man lacked compassion. The poor man needed compassion. The rich man was respected. The poor man was an outcast. The rich man had family. The poor man appears to be all alone. The rich man had a home. The poor man appears to be homeless. When we look at the contrast, it's startling, isn't it? And if you were to describe this to the day of Jesus, to the people of of Jesus, and you asked them which one goes to heaven, they would have all said the rich man. (laughs) Every one of them. And the poor man would have gone on into his misery. Because after all, he was under the curse of God in order for that to happen. But Jesus shocks the audience when he comes to death. They both had something in common, and that was death. And then everything is turned upside down. Everything. I just love how it shows the mind of our God that he thinks so totally opposite of the way we think. And I'm convinced that the more I study Scripture, that I have to purge my wrong humanistic thinking out of my life and think like God. And it's totally different than the way I started and as I grew up apart from Christ. Notice the contrast, though. The rich man became the needy man, while the poor man became the aided man. The rich man sought relief in his mouth, while the poor man was comforted. The rich man became isolated and alone, while the poor man was with Abraham. And the rich man was in agony, while the poor man was in eternal bliss. We saw that the rich man was in hell while the poor man was in heaven. Abraham's bosom here is probably referring just to the fact that the man was laying maybe on the chest of Abraham. It's the same concept that's probably looked at when the Apostle John lays himself on the bosom of Jesus at the Lord's Supper. Probably this idea of an intimate relationship with Abraham. He's right there with him. This is a startling truth because... If you think about this concept and you put this in, in perspective in context for their day, the unclean man could not be close to anything clean, especially Abraham. But the, star, the story becomes more startling as we go along. Here is Lazarus with Abraham in a very beautiful setting of perfect fellowship in heaven. Whereas the rich man is far, far, far away from heaven. Today I want to focus our attention on the dialogue between the rich man in hell and Abraham who is in paradise. This is a very interesting dialogue. It's the only place in scripture where a person in hell actually speaks and describes what's happening and what they're feeling. Hell is described several places in Scripture, but only here do we get a first-hand account of what a person is experiencing in hell. So in this conversation, there's three requests made by the man, and then three answers by Abraham in verses 24 to 31. In this conversation, there are loads of valuable truth revealed for all of us to know. There is some great theology 
for all of us to understand and embrace in this story. And this theology, when we learn this through the story, should have a huge impact in the way we live and the way we think. I would suggest Jesus was using this story to call the Pharisees to view God differently, view His justice differently. He was challenging them to think differently of their own hearts also. How do we view ourselves? This is a very important question. How do we view God? Do you realize that how we view God and how we view ourselves determines everything about our actions and our attitudes in this life? If we have a big view of God and His holiness and His justice and a small view of ourselves, an accurate view of our depravity apart from God, we will realize that the world is not about us. The world is about God. And that is what Jesus is calling them to do. Think differently. Evaluate these things. So today we're going to cover each of these questions in Abraham's response with the goal of knowing God more. And His justice, we want to know His holiness. Again, if we know God is a just judge, then we will be motivated to seek God's grace and mercy more. If we know just how holy God is, we will be on our knees more. We will be crying out to God more. If our view of God's holiness is small, we will stand proudly thinking we're all that. But if we view God as big and holy, we will be on our knees all the time, and especially when we sin. No, if you are a believer, you cannot lose your right standing with God. But it does not change the fact that you know who God is, and you know that God takes sin seriously. We do need to know that, don't we, believers? We won't use grace as an excuse for sin if we know just how holy God is. So very important. So let's look at this first round of dialogue. The first question and answer in the dialogue is found in verses 24 to 26. It starts with the first self-righteous demands in verse 24. Notice he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. At first glance, you see, you look and see Father Abraham. Notice he calls him his father. We see here that the man assumes that he is related to Abraham. Thus, he's probably Jewish. Also, it might be that the man is trying to use his relationship with Abraham as a means of leveraging Abraham's mercy. Again, this was a common way of justification for the Jews. I'm Abraham. I'm from Abraham. So this means God's going to take care of me. He's leveraging it with Abraham himself. You're my father. I'm your child. I'm your son. Why don't you give me a little mercy? He's leveraging his status as a Jew to get mercy. It's interesting. He's justifying himself even in hell. Think about that for a second. He's saying, in effect, I'm not getting 
everything I deserve and I shouldn't just grin and bear it and take it. He's saying, hey, I am your son. Give me a, give me a little bit of mercy, please. This guy is saying, I'm Jewish like you, Abraham. You're my father. I respect you. See, I call you father. <laughs> Won't you give me some mercy for the respect I just showed to you? He saw his Jewish status as a reason for mercy, even in hell. At first glance, we might think, this guy has changed now that he's in hell, right? His circumstances have changed, but has his heart changed? No, not a bit. We'll see this as we go along. Circumstances changing does not mean a heart changes. (laughs) Very important. By the way, ladies and gentlemen... Don't think that an event in your life, a circumstance in your life, actually changes your heart. (laughs) I don't know how many times I've heard people tell us, not recently, but tell over the years, people telling me a testimony. And when they give their testimony of God's grace in their life, you know what they tell me? About an event where they almost died and God rescued them. Well, that's a change in circumstance. God did rescue them there, but that is not salvation. (laughs) That is not getting right with God. That's a circumstance change. You were going to die, but God spared you, yes, in his providence. But that's not salvation. Circumstances changing does not mean that your heart changes. What changes your heart? Do circumstances change your heart? No. Getting in an accident is not going to change your heart. What's going to change your heart? We'll find out as we go along in the passage passage tells us notice he says have mercy on me obviously the roles have definitely been reversed right he's now the needy one the guy in agony and ask and what's he do he asks for relief from his agony but again i find it interesting that the rich man starts with two commands here these are imperatives these are not will you please help me It is commands. You could literally translate it this way. Father Abraham, give me some mercy. (laughs) I want it now. It's a command. As a matter of fact, send Lazarus. (laughs) He's commanding Abraham to send Lazarus. The gall. Here's the guy that walked by him in agony all of his entire life, and now he's telling Abraham, to give me mercy and send that man, the unclean man that you can tell what to do. He hasn't changed. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus. These are amazing. It's staggering. He should have said what? Will you please have mercy on me? I know I don't deserve it. I'm a wretched sinner. But is there any way that you can give me a little bit of water to cool my tongue. He didn't say that. He commanded him, give it to me now. I'm burning here. Can you give a little bit of water to a guy that needs some help? His heart hasn't changed. He says, send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. You got to remember, isn't it ironic How amazing things have changed. He wouldn't get a crumb from the guy 
from the rich man's table, but now he's just wanting a drop of water on his tongue. It turned, the, the, the turn is staggering. Here is this guy who had walked by Lazarus' entire life and shown no compassion, yet he knew Lazarus because he calls him by name, and yet he had shown no compassion to him. It appears that the best he ever offered to him was maybe some scraps that his dogs were eating also. And he has the gall to command Abraham to send Lazarus to give him relief. It's interesting how the rich man thinks of Lazarus, even in heaven, as a lesser person. He doesn't address Lazarus directly. He addresses Abraham. Because after all, he's the father, Abraham. But he doesn't address Lazarus directly. He goes above him because he thinks Lazarus is just the poor pond scum of society, even in heaven. What is this? Self-justification even in hell? Yes, this is what it is. Even in hell, the rich man speaks as if Lazarus is a lower-class person who needs to be serving him. Do people in hell think they deserve what they're getting? I actually don't think they do. I think they think that this is just totally unfair. This isn't right. This ain't fair. I don't deserve this bad a treatment. What does that show about the human condition? The heart of humanity. Does humanity in hell think that they deserve better? Yes. Do you think it's any better when they're out here and they have all this? No. Humanity thinks we're born thinking we deserve better. We don't see ourselves as sinful, wicked people. We walk around thinking, I deserve better. None of us complains because we think we're getting what we deserve. (laughs) We complain because we think we are being mistreated. I find it interesting how in the previous life, the rich man avoided giving Lazarus something for his mouth. But now he thinks Lazarus should come give him some relief to his mouth. I'm not going to give you anything, but you need to come give me something. Come into my abode now. Come on over to the pit of hell and give me some water. You see how twisted this man's thinking is? This is the mind of an unregenerate person, even in hell. They view everything through their own selfish eyes and thoughts. They see everyone as their servants. The world revolves around them, even in hell. (laughs) Can you imagine? I mean, you would think you're under the just judgment of God with all that wrath coming down on you, and you'd be going, it's really not about me. (laughs) It's not about me. No, they're saying, it's still all about me. It's all about me. You would think that he would say, oh, Lazarus, I am so sorry for being such a wicked man to you. I'm so sorry that I walked by you numerous times and didn't help you at all. But instead, he does what? He elevates himself over Lazarus and says, send him to me to give me some relief. Notice the reason for he gives for his demands. 
He says, for I'm in agony in this flame. Key word being I. <laughs> Not agony. I, me, I'm in agony. Come on, send me some help. I'm the problem. I deserve better. Again, Lazarus saw it, and I believe, and we'll see in a second, I think Lazarus might have gone to help because his heart was all about compassion. But God established something differently so that his wrath would be full. Notice this horrifying phrase, I'm in agony in this flame. Look, we can twist this, and we can change this, and we can try to misinterpret this, but there's no way around it. Agony means agony. Okay? That's what it means. Hell means hell. That's what it is. He is suffering terribly the flames of hell. We can't sugarcoat it. Does hell cause a change of heart? No, we see that. But... It is a very effective way of punishing for sin because God picks the perfect way to be just. Now, I know some of you say, man, hell just seems to be so unjust. Don't say that. Because God does not make mistakes. God is a just God. He knows exactly how sin should be paid for. He doesn't make us mistake ever. If somebody ends up in eternity in hell and that's how God's established it, guess what? It is 100% just because God's holy and he does not sin. Everything he does is righteousness. I believe hell is eternal. And the passages say it and scream it, like I said last week, existing in torment. But I think it's eternal because sin, one sin, deserves eternity. One sin Deserves eternity separated from God. One sin. An infinitely holy God cannot stand any sin and should not stand any sin without it being judged. Have you ever read the story of the guy that reaches out and touches the ark? You know, I went to catch him. Does that, right? It's about to fall, reaches out. Have you ever read that and gone, man, that's harsh. God just judged him. I mean, he was trying to keep it from falling. What's the problem? Perfect justice. Really? Yes, because God knows the intents of all people's hearts. He knows everything. Uzzah thought that he needed to save the ark. He should have cried out, God, save the ark! I'm master. I can do it. No, folks, look, anything sinful, anything that does not show God to be holy deserves eternity in judgment. But you know, it's interesting. If it could be that we could pay for every sin, now that's a big F. If it could be that we could pay for every sin in hell. If, as the Catholics say in purgatory, that you go burn it off for a while and then you go to heaven. If that was possible, there's one huge problem. Ready? One gigantic problem. The man in hell is continuing to sin. He does not stop sinning. Anybody in hell does not stop sinning. They don't repent. They continue to say, this ain't fair, you're unjust, 
Change this now. All the way to eternity, they elevate themselves up to God. That's a staggering thought. We ask, how in the world can Satan be so evil? The answer is, is that's what evil is. It elevates itself above God. And finds its fulfillment in putting itself above God. And that happens in hell just as much as it does here on earth. But notice the stinging denial that Abraham gives him in verses 25 and 26. But Abraham said, child, I remember that during your life you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you are, be, you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. So that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able. And that none may cross over from there to us. Abraham does not reject that the man is a descendant. It appears to be that he still gets this concept when he says child. The term is an affectionate title and often used for people that would call them their child, their own child, their son. So Abraham is not necessarily rejecting that he is from his physical lineage. But Abraham does reject his request. And then he explains why it's not possible for the request to be answered. Abraham calls the rich man to do, to remember first, remember his previous circumstances. And second, he calls him and explains that it's impossible to give him mercy anyway. Notice Abraham's answer. He says, remember, remember during your life. You had previously, um, you had provisions before your death. Lazarus had none. Now you're getting what you deserve, isn't what he's saying. This is exactly what he's saying. You're getting what you deserve. You're getting what you deserve. The reversal, as we all know, was not because the rich man was a sinner and Lazarus was not a sinner. That's very important. Lazarus was a sinner too. The rich man was a sinner. Why did the reversal happen? We'll get to that in a little bit. As the rich man looks and he sees this, his heart condition doesn't change. And he got, and before he died, it did not change. So he got what he deserved. As the rich man will bring up, and it's so interesting to me, that in a second we're going to see that the rich man actually talks about repentance. He says, send them so that they will repent. It's very interesting. It's as if the rich man knew what repentance was. That's a staggering thought. How can you know what repentance is and yet not do it? You can know that it means to submit yourself, turn and embrace God, but you said, yet you still don't do it, even in hell. By the way, we see here that it doesn't matter how bad it gets. You can't make a person change their heart. The rich man was just not repentant. And so therefore he was getting what he deserved. Lazarus, on the other hand, had repented, had trusted in Christ. It doesn't tell us when, but that's the only way he would have that result. It's by grace through faith alone that we are saved. 
Again, when a person repents and believes in God, they demonstrate the change of their heart and their right standing with God. And the reversal was dramatic. But the unrepentant rich man was now getting what he deserved. I think of this verse this week we went over in um, uh, Grace on Campus. Romans 2.5 says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This section is talking about that kind of person, the rich man kind of person, a moralist. And Paul says, in effect, look, you've been given mercy and kindness and tolerance day after day after day after day, and you've said, no, 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 I'm not going to turn. So in all that process, you just stored up wrath for yourself that whole entire time. It's a staggering thought. See, the Lord had been so kind and tolerant and merciful to the rich man before his death, hadn't he? He had food. He had a house. But he had rejected the Lord and suppressed the truth and did not repent. And so, therefore, he was getting what he deserved. And that's what Abraham says, in effect. Dude, you made your bed, now lie in it. That's the summary. It's the modern version. You are getting what you deserve. Again, Jesus is telling the Pharisee who were lovers of money. This is what you are headed for. The second part is that it's impossible. Notice it's not able. It says, so that those who wish to come from here to you will not be able. God made it impossible. There's no way for it to happen. And I find it interesting, Abraham says it's impossible for anyone to come to him or for them to come to Haiti or to, to paradise. God had made the separation between heaven and hell and made it so that it couldn't be crossed. I find it interesting because, in fact, knowing the heart of Lazarus and knowing the heart of a regenerate man, what would be the natural reaction? Okay, I know he treated me bad, but I want to go down there and give him a little bit of mercy. Because after all, Anybody in heaven and anybody sitting in this place that knows somebody in hell wants them out of hell. Is there anybody in here you wish? And if you say, yes, we're in trouble. Is there anybody you wish to spend eternity in hell? Nobody. Nobody. I don't want anybody in this room to go to hell. No way. I don't want anybody in this world. My desire is for everybody to come to repentance. I really do. It's ultimately up to God. He fixes that. I proclaim the gospel to everybody, hoping that they will embrace the truth by the grace of God. It's impossible. So God made it impossible so that compassion couldn't reach out to the ones in hell. Previously, their lives, Lazarus was right there at the guy's gate. It's very interesting. Do you see the irony of this, how it just flips around? How close was Lazarus to the rich man all of his life? He was right on his gate, begging, please, just, you know, just little crumbs, dogs licking on his legs and his sores. Please, just a little bit, walk by him every day outside his gate. Right there. He's right there, just, you know, just a, just a piece of bread. Just, just a little water. 
walked by him his whole entire life, and now the chasm's gigantic. And God says, you're getting what you deserve. It's impossible. You get only what you deserve. So we see here God's justice is not changeable. It cannot be changed once a person dies. So contrary to the Roman Catholics, a person cannot pay for their sins and then burn for a little while and go to heaven. There's no transportation between the two worlds. So I think this calls all of us to take seriously our time on earth, doesn't it? We don't know how long we will be here or how long our neighbors will be here or how long the next person you stand behind in the grocery aisle will be here. You just don't know how long you will be here. And eternity waits that person if they die. See, heaven or hell is a reality that's coming for every single person very soon. Very soon. We need to take this seriously. Sober, right? Sober-minded. Serious. Now, the rich man comes with his second request. Look at it. A second self-righteous demand. He says, Then I beg you, it does seem as though he begins to beg. Hmm. Like the beggar, Lazarus, before. Hmm. Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Now, at this point, we're starting to think, okay, well, this guy is starting to show a little bit of compassion for his brothers. At first glance, we might think that. But upon further look, we see this guy still has a hint of self-righteousness revealed here. Even in this spot. Look at the passage, folks. Send Lazarus to warn my five brothers. Again, he's making... Request for Lazarus to serve him. This does not show much of an awareness of just how much he hurt Lazarus. Also, on top of that, he is concerned for his own. This is crucial. He's concerned for his own, his brothers. He wasn't like, oh, man, there's a lot of people up in Jerusalem that need to hear the gospel. It's like, my family. Hmm. My father, my father's house, my five brothers. Again, much like before he lived, before he died, he lives the same way then. He was all about protecting his own, his family. The hint here is that I don't want my brothers to come here. He's asking for a miracle to be done to help convince his brothers to repent and avoid hell. What would his brothers have got if they went to hell, by the way? Just what they deserved. He didn't say, my brothers deserve hell too. They're coming. Now, it could be assumed, but he's still concerned mainly for just his family. It does appear to have a concern for his brother, but outside of his own family, he, he doesn't really appear to care. Again, the idea be, may be here, well, if you can't save me, save my household. But as we are going to see, the rich man has a wrong view of the human condition. And this is crucial. This is so important. I hope everybody is listening, paying attention, focused. 
Again, there's assumptions being made here. He's saying in his request, if he would have seen a man rise from the dead, he would have repented. He's assuming and saying a miracle would have caused me to repent. Because he's saying, send a miracle and they will repent. Hmm. Which is saying, what about God? You didn't give me enough evidence. Hey, hey dude, you didn't give me enough proof. That's why I ended up here. Now give some proof to them. Woo! What's he saying? He's elevating himself over God again. He's saying, I'm the one. I know how to save people better than you do, God. Woo! Can you believe it? The audacity. This is in hell. They needed proof is what he thought. At the root of demanding for proof is a wrong theology of man and a wrong theology of God. 1 Corinthians 1.22 says this, For indeed Jews ask for a sign. Well, he's being just like he was. <laughs> Seeking a sign. I think all too often, ladies and gentlemen, evidence will we think evidence will cause conversion. Some well-known Christian writers have written books saying evidence is what caused them to believe. But this passage appears to go against this theory and this thinking. Now, does God work within the evidences along with the Word of God? I could see that, but ultimately it's about the Word of God. It's not the evidences. I had opportunity this week to talk to a person that was an unbeliever. We gave and explained everything, you know, in Romans 2. And as I got to talk to him afterwards, I really felt compassion on the man. No matter how much I talked, the more I gave him, more evidence from the Bible, from the Bible, more word I gave him, the more he said, would you please put the book away? Talk to me without that, and I can talk to you. Well, of course, you don't want me to talk about this, because this is the very thing that will convert you. You can't use that authority. We don't know it's true. Yeah, we do. God's word. Circular reasoning. Sorry, it's the truth. God gave it to us. You stand on reasoning, too. No, I see everything. Oh, really? All my proofs are what I see. What's he saying, in effect? He says, I have to see it to believe it. I said, okay, so you're going, it's, it's logical. I kind of set him up. It's logical, then, to deduce from evidence that God is there, right? Yes. So you believe in logic? Yes. Where do you see that? Where's logic? Can I hold it? When did it start? When did logic start? I don't know. The mind of God. You're borrowing from my worldview. So very important, ladies and gentlemen. Doesn't matter where you are, the unregenerate heart won't embrace God unless they're convicted and converted by the word of God, the gospel.
Doesn't matter where you are, even in hell, the guy demands and says, the word of God is not sufficient to save my brothers. The rich man thought the same way. He thought, if my brothers see the resurrected Lazarus, they will definitely repent and believe. But he was dead wrong. The heart of man is so desperately sick, even seeing somebody rise from the dead will be ignored and denied unless it's included with the grace of God. Folks, this is obvious from the events that happened just a little bit after this. Because another Lazarus does die. And another Lazarus is raised. And when that Lazarus is raised, they killed the Messiah that did it. And immediately they plot to kill him. John chapter 11, read the story, it's amazing. Many people, many, many, many people saw miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle and rejected Jesus. Only a small few embraced the truth. And they said things like what Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And God said, what? Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But God. So look at the convicting response. (laughs) But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Abraham's answer was startling. Your brothers have the Old Testament scriptures. Moses and the prophets are what they need to embrace to be saved. They have the Old Testament scriptures. That's all they really need. Scripture is sufficient to save them. That's what he's saying. Scripture is sufficient to save them. Again, this is before Jesus had died and rose from the dead and the New Testament wasn't given yet. But the Old Testament still had enough revelation of God, lots of it, to save them in Moses and the prophets. They could believe in God, repent and turn and submit to Him. Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. First five books of the Bible weren't even written yet. Interesting. The law and the prophets revealed God's holy character. It showed God's high standard in the law. It showed how no one could live up to the standard. The Old Testament revealed that all men are sinners in need of forgiveness. Yet it also showed that salvation was by grace through faith. It said that. Remember, as I quoted that verse in Genesis 15, 6. Again, scriptures were sufficient, a sufficient revelation of God in order to bring about repentance. There was no need of miracles to convince people. The fact was that brothers had overwhelming proof. They had them. His brothers had overwhelming proof. And they had a great revelation of God in the Old Testament scriptures. If they were like the rich man and rejected this overwhelming revelation, then they deserved hell just like them. But notice the bad theology of the rich man. The rich man thought miracles were the answer to unbelief. He did not see the problem was within himself. I cannot stress that enough to you. Do you hear me, ladies and gentlemen? The problem is not God. The problem is you. He didn't get it. He didn't see that he had the wretched heart. He also did not see the value of what people already had. The Word of God. 
He had a low view of Scripture. Notice the rich man also did not view the Old Testament because he because this was his request. He was saying, in effect, the word is not enough. I don't, you know, that doesn't even come to mind. The unbeliever does not embrace the scriptures. He doesn't. The unbeliever does not embrace the sufficiency of scripture. Do you hear me? The unbeliever, no matter what, they will reject the scriptures. Unless the grace of God works through the word of God to convert them. Why does it why is it that every time you go to evangelize a person and they say, put away the Bible, argue without the Bible, what are they doing? They're saying, Take away your sword, put it down, and talk to me on my level, which is absolutely crazy. Don't do that. Because this is the thing that converts. This and this alone. This is a great warning for all of us, folks. No amount of words or pressure can, can convert a soul without the divine grace of God working in through the Word of God. Now, it's the power of the gospel that converts. It's made effective by God's divine work in concert with the Word. I think Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 fit perfectly. Look at them. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Folks, even people in hell do not value the sufficiency and authority of Scripture. What do we think they're going to do when they're not under the full judgment of God? Don't lay down your sword. Study your Bible. Know it. That's what changes people's lives. Even when they say, no, it doesn't. <laughs> we have one message that converts. The message revealed in the Word of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice finally, the third request. We'll go through this one quick. The argumentative request. Now he starts to argue with him. Right? Ladies and gentlemen, this is a good sign right here. Arguing... arguing is a good sign of an unsubmissive heart. Do you understand? If you want to argue, you start talking to somebody and they just want to argue, you go, this is useless. Because their pride is just, whoop, way up there. He begins to argue, he says, but, he said, no Father Abraham, no Father Abraham, look at that, no Father Abraham, But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Oh, my. He's talking to Abraham that knows God and is in heaven. He says, Nah, I don't believe what you're saying. What? Talking to a glorified man in the presence of God. No, I don't believe what you're saying. That's not true. 
my brother's heart is not that bad. No, my brother's heart, if you just send them a miracle, then they'll believe. (laughs) He thought repentance came as a result of seeing enough proof, right? But this is wrong theology. It's a divine call through the Word of God. By the way, it does appear that the man knows what his brothers need to do. He says they will repent. But he still does not get what produces repentance. That's crucial. What makes us repent? What makes us turn and embrace God? What is it? The truth of God revealed to our hearts. That's what makes us repent. Not a miracle. By giving this argument, he's still rejecting God's sufficient authoritative word. He is still elevating himself and his brothers over all of humanity. He's saying, me and my brothers, we just need a miracle. Again, give us a miracle and we believe. He is doing this because the Bible says clearly, our hearts are desperately sick above all else who can understand them. He's rejecting the total depravity of mankind. He is saying, in effect, I'm not a sinner, and they aren't either. I'm not so sinful that a good miracle can't cure that problem. No, no, no. God has given overwhelming evidence to his brothers. The Word and general revelation. I love to do this with people. Especially on campus, it's great. Man, there is so much evidence everywhere you look. There's plenty of evidence. Man, just look around for a second. You are some amazing works of art. God is also an amazing craftsman. Makes you all look different. And yet your hearts are beating right now and you're not telling your brain it's automatically working it. All that's working perfectly. Man, whoa, evidence everywhere, right? And they go, no, 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 need more, need more, need more, need more, need more. Word, 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 nope, 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 not enough, give me more. I'll submit to you when you meet me on my terms. Pride, sinful, wicked hearts, that's what we have. We are born with those. Notice Abraham's final word. But he said to him, They do not listen to Moses and the prophets. They will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Abraham says, in effect, If you won't listen and embrace the word of God, no amount of miracles will save you. Did you see the irony here? Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to die and rise from the dead. And this story would literally be given along the way for Jesus to go to the cross and die in just a few months. And after he rises from the dead, they will still reject him. And the evidence keeps pouring out over and over and over and over. The Pharisees were getting what the rich man was asking for for his brothers. And it still didn't happen. 
They didn't repent. They still rejected their Messiah. So what can we glean from this? Well, here's what we can glean. Hell is a real place and it's a horrific place. And a proper understanding of this place will reveal how seriously God takes sin. So repent and believe. People in hell, number two, still do not repent. Thus have a changed heart concerning God and His Word. We must know that the power of God to convert is in the Word of God and the sovereign grace of God, and that's it. Not our abilities to talk somebody into heaven. Not going to happen. As 1 Corinthians 2, 4 says, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, which is a reference to the word of the gospel. It is God's Spirit coupled with the power of God, the gospel, that changes lives, and only that. Even a message from hell is not enough to convert a soul. There's such irony here. Jesus is giving the Pharisees who are just like the rich man. They're giving them what he asked for his brothers right there in the sermon. And they still rejected him. Oh, the depths of the wickedness of our hearts apart from God. Do you understand, ladies and gentlemen, we can hear the gospel countless times but still not be converted if God does not divinely work within us. At the same time, we have a responsibility, each one of us, as we hear the gospel to what? Repent and believe. Turn to Him. So, what is the sign that you need to help you to trust Christ? Hopefully it's not a sign. Hopefully it's the Word of God. This, ladies and gentlemen, this glorious book reveals our God and causes us to believe. This is what we are going to preach. This is what this church is going to be about. This is what your home should be about. This is where truth is found. And hope is given. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Revealed in your word that shows us and gives us hope in you. Thank you, Father, for that glorious truth. Thank you for Christ who took our wrath. Thank you, Father, for bringing us today to hear who you are, what you're about, and what you desire us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.